Hey there, welcome to Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at what makes them do what they do. I'm Pete Townsend, your co-host of Money Never Sleeps, along with Owen Fitzgerald. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is kindly sponsored by Ireland's fintech and financial services recruitment specialist, Top Tier Recruitment. If you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it is highly advisable that you build a relationship with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com and tell them we sent you. This week, we've got another Money Talk special segment where the comeback kid, Owen Fitzgerald, helps me dig into a few of the things that happened in the past week in tech, venture deals, and the topics we generally cover in our day jobs. So let's just get right to it with this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps. Money Never Sleeps, pal. Here we go again. Welcome to Money Never Sleeps. We're recording today from the home studio. In this Money Talks episode, we're looking at news from this week relevant to us in this cosmic cloud of finance, tech, startups, and enterprise that we both operate in. And hopefully it's relevant to all of you, our friendly, loyal listeners. We've got Owen Fitzgerald, fresh off of sending out the first edition of the Money Never Sleeps newsletter. How are you doing today, Shakespeare? I'm good, Pete. <laughs> loving, loving, I was saying earlier, loving, the, uh, loving the, how the newsletter has been received so far. It's great. I think we're at like 40, 46 people signed up already. To get it every week, so that's great, and it's just going to go from there. It's th- those endorphins of you know getting those like buttons, just like getting a new subscriber into the money never sleeps. And finally, I have something to do with all those interesting memes and stuff that I that I find over the course of a week. Exactly, just just get them loaded up for the entertainment of others, right? right? Yeah, that's it. Cool. So let's uh, let's dig right into the stories this week. We've got a few that we're going to go through. Uh, but the first one is the all-famous Wirecard, and this one has been done to death over the news over the last couple of weeks. Um, and I'd like to say that uh, we could do a deep, deep, deep analysis into what happened, but let's not do that. Uh, so instead of looking at the piles of the rearview mirror news stories out there that I just mentioned, uh, a number of folks have put forward some more forward-looking thoughts on what will come from the Wirecard mess overall, Okay. So one of the favorites out there to look at for analysis, right, instead of doing your own work, is Chris Skinner. Shout out to Chris. feel like we give him a shout out quite a bit, don't we? He was blogging this week about regulation at the process level, right, and rather than the entity level. So for example, Stripe enabled the merchant checkout process. So regulate that instead of Stripe's whole business. I don't know how you do that. It's really complicated to implement. So how do you regulate the whole fintech business though, including the front-end design? You don't regulate the front-end design. Um, do you just deal with it? Do you best do your best to ring fence the regulatable activities, leaving all these core capabilities around understanding customers and UX design to, for those who just breathe at will? I'm thinking, Owen, is this why Tom Blomfield stepped aside at Monzo? Yeah, well, actually, on that one in particular, the the kind of word on the street was that he was stepping aside because so much of his time was getting taken up on the regulatory side um, and that he actually wanted to focus on building the business, which is why he stepped aside and they brought in someone kind of more of a background to lead on those conversations. Um, Look, what's really interesting, the first thing is that it it, it was funny because I saw Chris Skinner's article, like appears at like seven o'clock or something in my inbox every morning. And I saw it and I immediately had written a text to you or I'd written a text to you this morning saying this, like, this is what we've been talking about and we should talk on the episode tonight. And you'd already sent me the kind of notes for us, which included Chris I know. Post, so yeah. All that. And my, my, my comment was, can you now pass me a lightsaber behind your back through the force? Yeah, absolutely. 
you know what? And and only then it's like I'm, I'm reading it here because it was uh, on the FT at like uh, 20 minutes ago, 53 minutes ago. So the FT had head of German financial watchdog defends agency's Wirecard role and said that uh, they did their job because Wirecard is classified as a tech company and not under Baffin's oversight. That's the problem. That's. Am I wrong or am I naive in thinking that like in any other circumstance you would consider the group like if you as a business or if I'm investing or anything like that, like you consider all the different parts of the group in your decision. So how is it that something like this can happen and like the likes of Baffin can say, oh, well, we only looked after this very specific financial services thing. Let's not even think about whatever else the company does. Like that doesn't make any sense. Well, I think it come it comes down to standards, right? But can you actually regulate both the tech side of a business and the tech subsidiaries of a bank uh, or of a regulated financial service pro- provider, um, as well as the financial services part of it, right? I think you kind of have to. The only way to really regulate the tech side of the business, though, is through things like ISO 27001, which is a set of standards that um, a lot of different tech companies that are working in financial services, um, they go after that certification, um, which basically says, here's all my controls, here's all my security. I don't know. I don't know. Take take another example. We talked about uh, the last time it was obviously WhatsApp and payments and how that was fantastic. So... Like in that particular example where the payment function is embedded in a messaging app. So the, like WhatsApp, you know, we, yes, shouldn't fall under obviously a financial regulator, but it's embedded payments within its core product. So like surely you have to regulate what WhatsApp in that particular scenario needs to be regulated by the regulator, but it is then fully owned by Facebook. So you can't like, I just, I don't know. I just, I find it, hard to believe or hard to comprehend that you could just kind of treat them as independent businesses despite them being subsidiaries of a wider group and yeah not I, I know whole and try to find some way to say oh well in this scenario oh well like you know wirecard bank was fine like you know because that was just the bank bit and we did our bit and you're like well, yeah but that's not really the truth you know no and and i think you know what one of the thoughts I had earlier today was just on ring fencing the business, right? Where did Wirecard start? Was it a tech company or was it a bank, right? I think it was a tech company first, right? And then they went and got a banking license so that they could do certain things. Um, Actually, they acquired they acquired another business which had the license, which is how they kind of reversed into the license. Okay. So w- whether they did it natively or they uh, they bought it, right? They ended up with... A banking license. So, uh, given that it was a tech business first, okay, when they end up with an entity that has a banking license, well, you ring fence the tech company away, and all that you get regulated really is the banking entity and all the controls around that, right? That's, I think, that's what most folks do out there. If you have a business that, um, with you know, uh, with headcount, with costs, with overhead. Uh, that doesn't need to be regulated. Keep all of that outside of the scope of the regulatable activity, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, look, I'm working with a company at the moment, and they're you know looking at a potential bank license at some point down the line. They're in the banking as a service kind of space, 
But again, conscious, they're conscious that anything that happens in two years' time, you know, that bank piece of it is going to be an entirely separate entity, separate uh, board, separate structure, everything. And there'll be a, a contract and an arm's length agreement or whatever with the, the current company for provision of you know, tech services or whatever, of the platform or whatever. Like that's, the board. That, that's where the separation is. You know, surely that should be the case. Uh, but it just like it, it begs the question then as to, you know, the reason so many of these companies don't offer the kind of full suite of banking services, you know, the likes of the Amazons and Facebooks and stuff can get involved in financial services on the fringes where they can just mop up large customer numbers because they already have them is because they don't want the heavy regulation. Yeah. In, in that sense, then, like, you know, they're highlighting a problem, really. Well, I mean, Amazon are providing loans. Uh, we, 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 you and I talked about this a couple of years ago. Uh, obviously, providing loans to their suppliers on their marketplace. I got to expect that that's a subsidiary. Yeah. Yeah. And the funding line that's in place with it is probably, or what, I don't know, if, I can't remember if that's provided by a Goldman or someone like that, or if it's... You know, I think it is Goldman. Yeah. So it's probably, it's probably again, separate or ring fence or whatever, or it's structured in a particular way, but it's still, yep. it's still part of Amazon group. So yeah, it, it this, the whole space is a quagmire. And it, does, it does seem a bit messy when you like when you really try to look at the regulatory side of it, and then like it do, it poses the question: Is you know banking as a service is it going to have impact on valuations? Is companies out there publicly like looking to raise large funding rounds? And in this particular space, you typically are like, raising the 50, 100 million plus funding rounds. You know, are investors going to step back and say, "Well, actually, what's your plan around regulation?" You know. Um, how are you separating out the different products, the different regulators? You know, is it a case that the company, that company then goes and gets regulated to provide particular products? You know, so I, I'm, I had a good conversation with an interesting company there yesterday that are looking to go into the mortgage space. Um, but actually, they have access to a license from a, a different provider that wasn't actually taking up their license to lend into Europe. So they have access to that now. So that obviously sets, if that's the only product they offer, they're in a very strong position to be able to go to market with that license already. I get that. I, one of the other things that popped up on Wirecard today, I think my, my favorite quote, again, this was in the FT as well in a separate article yesterday. It was from Sharon Bowles, who's a former chair of the European Parliament's Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee. She was talking specifically about the audit of Wirecard and what's happened over the last three years. And her quote was, if you're going to audit a brewery, you don't just count the barrels of beer. You should wiggle them to see if they are full, right? Uh, so I thought that was all quite relevant to this. That's a good quote. Yeah. yeah. Well, they all, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff going to happen now on the audit side of it as well. So absolutely, and and you know, look look at the story overall, and you know, trying to trying to think about again from a future looking perspective how this is happening, but also. See the one of the fintech startups here in Ireland. They're doing they're they're solving this problem already, uh, and it's David Heath from Circuit. He's the founder and CEO there, and we recorded a quick segment with him earlier today on how Circuit's digitalization of audit confirmations would have prevented the Wirecard audit mess. So why don't we go to David right now? Money never sleeps, pal. So we're on with David Heath, the founder and CEO of Circuit here in Ireland. Dave, can you please tell me, how could Circuit have prevented the Wirecard audit mess that they're in right now? Tell us. Hey, Pete. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So Wirecard seems to have been a classic uh, accounting fraud. Um, uh, this problem has not uh, is not a new one. It's been around for for a long, long time. Um, but the basic, you know, let's inflate our revenue and and inflate our share price as a result, with the other entry in the double entry bookkeeping going to cash. So in this case, 1.9 billion sitting on the balance sheet as cash, and our revenues are are artificially inflated. Okay, yeah. so that's not a new a new, a new uh, fraud to, to occur. Um, what needs to happen then is that the the auditors come along and say, well, does this money actually exist? Um, is it accurate um, on the balance sheet, and who owns it? Um, and the ownership is an important piece in that, you know, obviously if it exists and it's accurate, that's all good. But does Wirecard actually own it? Um, which of its subsidiaries, because that, that was an issue as well, is that the, the group companies may, may also own it. You know, that, that is a, a classic fraud. So the, the objective then of the fraudster is to hoodwink the auditors. So the auditors come along and it's very easy considering how broken the process is for an auditor to take substandard evidence. So they should be getting independent evidence verified from the third party bank. This money sits in this account and it is owned by Wirecard. Um, in this case, the auditors relied on documents, screenshots provided by the client, who is the person committing the fraud. So classic, um, you know, case of, of false evidence, non-independent evidence. And so, you know, as an auditor myself over the years, I understand how you know, auditors get frustrated and they can take substandard evidence. And, and really, this is why Circuit was created. Um, it was to bring the auditors onto a system that's fit for the 21st century, allows them to get digital authorization from the client, and then to plug directly in to the third party source of evidence being the bank, or in some cases, a law firm or a broker that holds holds the funds, okay? Um, and so what we've done more recently is get regulated as an AISP, um, which means we have a digital certificate that proves our identity, and then we do the, the, the validation, and the regulation itself does the validation on the third party bank. Um, and really then from that point, the two systems communicate and the funds can be verified at source in real time. So really an auditor shouldn't be doing the field work on that job until they have that evidence in place. In this case, it was three years since verified kind of bank statements came into them. All right. So that's it in a nutshell then that your platform with your APIs would have hooked in to the bank's platform to independently confirm that the balances actually did exist. Exactly. We, we do the, the thing that the, the auditors kind of struggle with, you know, really they're not going to sign up banks onto their individual platforms and, and the banks haven't been there from a tech perspective, um, you know, and they're getting better. Um, but, but really having a junior auditor do a validation on a, a bank in Singapore is is you know just beyond them really um but really that 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 was 
what was happening. Uh, you know, this traditionally is a junior's job, um, even though it's a critical, critical piece of it. So really those two, those two systems to talk together uh, uh, by way of a digital certificate that proves the identity of each. Um, and, and, you know, even if there is no API available, the platform allows the auditor to do a request to a bank in Singapore. Circuit does the validation alongside the auditor. Um, and really all of that, the important thing is that's all independent of, of the company itself being audited. No. That's great. All right. And thanks for sharing that so well, Dave. Really appreciate it. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? So circuit.io is the, is the website. And uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for having me, Dee. All right, thank you. Money never sleeps, pal. So, thanks, David. Appreciate you sharing all that. Back to the here and now and talking about Irish startups and saying goodbye to Wirecard for now. We saw in the last few months uh, an interesting new platform come out of Chicago called Diffuse, which is looking at how we could deconstruct venture capital um, and look at the different components of it. And they're running this great series of uh, web sessions called ConZoom. I just found out today, Owen, that they're going to have to change the name of it because you're not allowed to put the word Zoom into any sessions in which you're using Zoom. (laughs) Really? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't know that. Right. So they were kind of branding this, this group and this, uh, this networking um, session uh, hosting that they do, you know, calling it Conzoom as in consume, but C-O-N-Z-O-O-M. That's going to have to change. So they got to come up with a new name. So uh, we've given a shout out before to Kenny Estes on the show. Uh, he's the head of Diffuse. Uh, also, Ayla Krem, she is running the whole community there. Um, but they did a great post. We have to get Kenny on the show. That's- we absolutely need to get Kenny on the show. Um, my favorite thing that Kenny once said was, hey, I'm a trader. Everything's for sale. Right, because he's got this long history as a trader, um, T R A D E R rather than the uh, Benedict Arnold kind. <laughs> anyway, so what they did was that uh, they're running these uh, after each one of the weekly uh, zooms that they're running. Uh, they basically do a sum up of, of everything and and do a bit of a blog post on that. So it, one of them came out today, and it was around the problem with raising money overseas. Um, and there was a quote from Ollie Walsh, uh, the CEO of what's a European B2B company. We'll leave it at that. We, we know Ollie well. Um, he said, a lot of the funds we got introduced to in the US when they were originally doing their fundraising round, they quickly closed the conversation when they realized we weren't US based. Um, and that is typical. Um, I, you know, myself, Owen, as you know, there's working with clients where, you know, part of the overall process is saying, how are we going to prepare you for funding and who are we going to connect you with? Um, they get all excited looking at all of the fintech VCs in the U S and I'm like, forget about it. You know, they're in Silicon Valley, they're in Chicago, they're in Austin, they're in Boston, they're in New York, they're investing on average 90 miles from their office, right? Or their town. Um, now things are changing, right? But um, when we had Finn Murphy on the show a couple of months ago, uh, what he said was Greylock, Excel, Index, and Sequoia all did their first early stage Irish investments in the last 12 months. You could take that as a once-off or you can take that as they've looked here once. So that means they're going to start looking here again, which is, I think, a strong indicator of good things to come. Um, but here's the big but. If an Irish startup 
does get funded by a US VC, how do we keep Irish startups from moving to the US when their investors have such a compelling case for them to move? It's a bigger talent pool of those experienced in seed or series A to series C level startup growth, friendlier tax regimes for founders and employees, bigger customer market in your backyard. Now we've got the good folks here at Scale Ireland working on this, like Liz McCarthy and Dave Cunningham, uh, and a few others are trying to do something about this. Um, but you know, there is the the general expression of sentiment. Uh, in this blog post um, by Diffuse, as well as, because I was on the Zoom, uh, the con Zoom, um, by a number of folks on the call was that, listen, if you're an Irish startup um, or you're a startup anywhere around the world and you're looking to get funding from overseas, from VCs or from other investors, it is difficult. We kind of already knew that, um, but it was just interesting to hear this all crystallize in such a way. And it got me thinking about this chat with Finn where he talked about Greylock, Excel, and Index. Um, but also f- further down in that conversation, we talked about um, the bigger talent pool of those experienced in growing uh, growing businesses from, say, 1 to 10 to 100 million and beyond. What do you think of all this, Owen? Look, I mean, there's, there's two pieces to it. There's, and, we, and it kind of relates to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago about, you know, trying to... Um, remotely invest and build relationships remotely like fundamentally uh, an investor in a particular region um, you know they, they need to get to know you so they want to see especially if you're going after customers in that market you're going to need to be on the ground like there's no two ways about it so you know there's the getting to know you you need to be over there building that relationship um, and also like realistically can you break the u.s from ireland without having a significant or building a significant presence over there. I mean, it's difficult and it's difficult for any market from here, you know, because you have to remember a lot of these investors will look at versions of this solution in the U S themselves, you know, huge market. So, you know, they're going to say, okay, well, these guys are on the ground here. They're knocking on doors. What are you guys doing all the way from Ireland? And I I think it comes, there's a, a combination of just naturally kind of needing or feeling that, that that company needs to be on the ground to be making a difference. And then there's the, you know, the, the piece about that they want to put money in, they want you to scale for that. You're going to need to scale in that market. Um, so I, it's, I mean, I, I don't think there's a, there's no magic bullet solution to that. Ultimately we're a small local market. So, you know, you can't scale in the Irish market. You're going internationally. All the companies we work with are trying to scale internationally for that reason. They need to, go to new markets and put a significant amount of time and boots on the ground to do that. Do they, should their whole, you know, brain trust move as well? And that was a conversation with Finn where we were kind of like back and forth. He was saying, listen, you know, is it easier to take the, the VP of growth talent, right? And that big talent pool that you have in the U S um, and people who are, had been experienced in doing that at the startup and scale up level before and get them to move to Ireland or do you get, you know, four to five to, to eight or nine folks that are the brain trust of the company at the funding point uh, and moving them over to the U.S. from Ireland, right? And he, he said more likely it's going to be, you know, uh, importing the brain trust to the U.S. I don't know. I, I mean... Um... Or can you do it with a remote sales team there, right? right? Well, with, that's, that's what I was going to say. At a, at a certain point, like as you're scaling the business, there's going to be a fair, there's going to be a split in the sense that, you know, 
the, the development can be maintained remotely. You know, your dev team and your CTO and all of that work can be kept in the country. But like realistically, your sales guys and your growth guys and some of you know, your customer support and all that sort of stuff is going to need to be on the ground in that particular market. Yeah. But, but you know, you could probably get away with, you know, opening your, your first office, local office in the US, in Boston or Chicago or wherever. And, you know, you have your senior senior person there, your head of that region or whatever. And you're, you know, you have some tech guys there, support and sales support. And that might be enough. And then your CEO has to get accept the fact that they're going to be on the plane a lot or spending a lot of time, you know, in that particular market, building that relationship. Um, but to me, like the, it shouldn't require, shouldn't necessarily require the full time um, kind of relocation of your brain trust. I wouldn't have thought, but yeah, it, it kind of depends on the space you're in as well. I mean, I'm working with a company, and you know they're in the kind of NGO space, and the CEO spends a significant amount of time in Asia, and will probably continue to because that's where their entire customer base is for the next kind of two to three years, and there's big projects that need to scale. So he needs to do that FaceTime over there. But the rest of the team and the development will be done out of here. Well, I mean, it, I, I think you're right. I think you're right to say it is. it depends, right? How are you selling your product? Is this something where you need to, is it enterprise sales? Do you need to develop those relationships with people? Um, obviously that is happening differently now, but there is something about saying, hey, I'm connecting with you over Zoom um, you know, five miles away because we're both in our downtown New York City or in Silicon Valley offices um, versus I'm connecting to you across five to eight different time zones, right? Um, and there's this proximity sense um, that I don't know, that, that develops relationship. Anyway, um, I think we thought it was worth bringing up. And I, I think if you can, if you can square away all of the systematic um, factors to put Ireland on par with, say, the UK or with the US in terms of um, the taxation of entrepreneurs and um, startup companies overall and how things are structured around options, then you're just leaving it into, you're leaving it with a case of talent, right? And hopefully that is a situation that is, again, it's going to be different strokes for different folks on which companies do end up moving to the U.S. Or, you know, and in what capacity. Um, do you have the brain trust moving? Do you have the dev team moving? Is it just sales? Can you build a big dev team here? Is your product so tech intensive that it's going to be helpful to build a big dev team here um, or in other places as well? So um, that was the gist of it. So speaking tech... One of the other news stories that came up today, or in the, actually this was a, a few days ago, it was the end of last week, um, and this is again on SoftBank, uh, and it was a, a, a just a general news story, a snippet that I saw on a website called HODL, H-O-D-L, um, but regardless of where it came from, Japan SoftBank is to launch a crypto fund with 50% in XRP, uh, and Colin Platt, who we've had on the show in the past, um, I think he was on episode 79. He's got this thing about XRP, um, which is Ripple, for those that aren't familiar with the crypto uh, terminology. Um, he was so surprisingly mild-mannered when I put it his way on Twitter, okay? And the whole concept of this was um, launching a crypto fund with 50% of the fund's assets in any one single cryptocurrency um, just, to me, seems completely irrational, as if it would 
you to say you're launching an investment fund with anything where 50% uh, is in a single asset, right? Um, I just thought that was ludicrous. Um, and with, with the way that Colin feels about uh, Ripple, um, that I thought he was going to uh, go all over this. But what he basically said was it's SoftBank International. They're longtime bag holders, which means they've been holding Ripple for a very long time. Um, so it's probably a way to shift it off their balance sheet because the liquidity is dried up. Um, and I thought if he's right, it's another heartwarming example of SoftBank's rock solid sense of fiduciary responsibility, right? And just to say, we've seen so much unfortunate, probably unintentional comedy out of SoftBank out of, uh, over the last year. Um, and I think you'd have to kind of weed through a few different mindsets to get to the level of comedy that I saw on this one. Um, Colin went so far with his distaste for Ripple a few years ago. We had him at the Adminovate conference here in Dublin with the Fundrex guys. He did a talk on blockchain. Uh, he And he referenced his, and I'm going to use some specific Colin Platt sarcasm here, his slight distaste of the concept of Ripple. Um, and it, the, the following year, when I think we asked him back, or probably the year after that, um, might have lost something in translation there. Um, he said he's not going to be able to come, but please make sure that you tell the crowd that I was right because Ripple's dropped 80% in the last year, right? So anyway, um, I thought it was funny. Just it, again, like I said, another example of what, what SoftBank uh, are up to these days, and it's just quizzical over and over again. I know I saw a great tweet uh, yeah, uh, the other day saying, uh, like, why haven't SoftBank uh, bought Wirecard? <laughs> totally, totally. They'd be the perfect buyer. I saw their their Wirecards US business are up for sale. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was a relation to that. Um, Other things that have been happening, um, saw Unilever and Verizon are the latest company to pull their advertising from Facebook. Um, speaking of sarcasm, friend of the show, Alan Meany from Fundrax, who we just mentioned, who I do the Adminovate conference with, um, he expressed his own distaste for Facebook uh, on Twitter just recently after seeing this news. Um, I would suggest that you check that out. Um, it was pretty funny. No, I don't think he'd appreciate it if, if we quoted him uh, public disparage, disparagement, right? We're, we're getting a bit too close to that anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody soft bank. I know. I know, I know. And, and changing tune and... and, and Do you know what? Uh, on the Facebook thing, um, I saw, obviously, there's been all the press around the companies pulling... Um, advertising for the month of July, you know, trying to make a change. And obviously Facebook then came out and these were like, oh, we're implementing all of these uh, things, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm, I'm, while we're chatting here, I'm looking at my Twitter to try to find the exact stats that I saw earlier, whereby uh, the top 20 large companies or something, you know, the Verizons and Unilevers and Coke and everybody else who advertise on Facebook accounts for like 10% of their revenue, something like 5 billion of, wow. of the 65 it's the 8 million or, or 10 million or whatever small companies that advertise on the platform that account for something like 65 billion of the revenue. Wow. That is nuts. It's one of these things whereby it sounds like, oh, this is going to make a big difference. Um, but the funny thing is, and, I, and we referred to it before when we talked about Facebook, like, a, a, you know, Scott Galloway made a great point and continues to make a great point saying that nobody, the only people who care are shareholders. And that the share price is going up because it's gone back up five percent today. So you have- don't even don't even get me going on share prices. <laughs> I I listened to Jeremy Grantham 
uh, from this. Someone wrote a good uh, newsletter about that recently. Actually. Yeah, I think I think they did. I think they did. I, it was quite well warmly received, Owen. Thank you. Um, yeah, and and Buffett all over this. Uh, like I said, Jeremy Grantham. He was on Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy uh, just recently, and I listened to that this morning. And he's getting all old school as he should because he's such a you know he's a legend um, that not too many folks have heard about outside of the hedge fund world. But um, yeah, he was talking about selling out of the bubble in the internet bubble in two thousand one um, with the price earnings ratio as high as they were at the Great Depression, and they sold out at I think it was you know twenty one times earnings, and then. Things continued to get worse and and went up to 35 times earnings before the bubble burst. I don't even want to think where we're at right now. I haven't bothered looking, but it's just there's absolutely no correlation right now between stock prices in the U.S. and what's actually happening in the economy. Zero. Oh, no, no, uh, completely. You know, um, it, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, one of the other interesting points he made was that, listen, you know, the the economy is in trouble. Um the Fed just decides, well, we're going to just issue paper, as he was calling it, right? Which is just, you know, inventing money. Um, and really, what people are betting on is that the Fed is just going to keep printing money. But it doesn't get into the hands of the people that need it, which is the problem. Yeah. Um, if you had a central bank digital currency, maybe you could, but I won't get into that. Rabbit hole another day. No. Yeah. Positive news. Positive news on on Facebook slash WhatsApp. Uh, this was great. There's a great platform out there. Only my friends in the capital markets are really going to appreciate this. Uh, but it's called Symphony. It's basically taking on Bloomberg um, in the financial markets. And it's almost like, you know, if Bloomberg were email, then Symphony would be Slack. Okay. Wait, did I even get that right? If, <laughs> if Bloomberg were email, then... Yeah, no, forget it. I'm not even going to bother with this analogy. It's too late. I'm tired. Um, but anyway. And I have another one, um, which I, I just wanted to throw out there. We might we might discuss it in more detail on another episode. Um, but obviously, there was press this week uh, about some of the Irish banks, uh, you know, pulling back from mortgage lending for applicants who are in receipt of the kind of pandemic payment. And I was talking to a company yesterday and, and the reason I bring it up is that actually the question, what we were talking about was, how do you underwrite uh, in the current environment? And there's a really good article in the Wall Street Journal um, about, uh, actually you have it open here, I'll tell you the exact title, Flying Blind into a Credit Storm. Widespread deferrals mean banks can't tell who's creditworthy. Yeah. And it raises a really important point because you need to, you want to lend, you want to uh, lend out mortgages in this example. Um, and like, how can you, you know, uh, when are some of the pandemic payments stopping? Are people going back to normal work? You know, um, trying to, you know, and maybe looking at new types of data to try to figure out who's risky, who's not. And like, I would have done a lot of this stuff in future finance on the underwriting side. And we had a lot of data to pull really kind of, I suppose, well put together models of projected affordability for students, but it was ultimately based on, you know, projections and based on historic data and everything and that kind of a hope that this is how it would all work out but you know banks are in the same position now and trying to figure that out is not going to be easy oh yeah uh, absolutely and i mean there's all these new models out there that are proving to be effective or had in the past like we've talked before about cabbage and and all of the data they've been gathering over 10 years on small businesses and 
building a much better loan program than any bank ever could just because of the granularity of the data that they have right this just creates a different problem though because it's really hard to tell you know the the really granular data over the past has been great but this is a whole different uh thing to look at now as to what it's going to look like for people you know and their affordability going forward oh yeah no there's this you know we're we're unprecedented times and you know just thinking about how yeah it's a nightmare to assess it's nightmare let's say let's say a second wave puts people out of work again and you you know you've said okay well they're going back to work in their shop or whatever and all of a sudden in three or six months time they're out again and you're like okay whilst obviously the 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 pr around it and all was very negative um i could completely understand the bank's point of view you're trying to make a prudent financial decision around a 30-year mortgage or whatever a real kind of idea as to what's going to happen in the next six to twelve months. Now, it, yeah, the, this whole thing is really challenging business models. Nuts. Scoring is something I, I'm, I'm uh, strangely passionate about. <laughs> yep. No, I hear you. Yeah, well, I mean, you spent all that time looking at these data models at Future Finance, right? Like you said. Yeah, yeah. And that was a whole new model compared to your experience of looking at the same thing because you were corporate banking before there and you probably saw some of that. And now you're looking at at different ways of loans and like, boom, that was a bit of of an awakening for you, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like like I said, we were, it was projected affordability on students based on the course they were doing, the likelihood that they'd graduate, the expected salary six months after graduation, like everything was projected. And we were, you know, we were fortunate that in the UK there's so much data available on credit scores and credit um, records, but as well around the data of uh, on particular courses in the UK, which is fantastic to have. But you were still, I mean, it was still trying to figure it out. We were making up a new model for it, and it's it's kind of similar because a lot of the old information is now irrelevant. Yep. And the underwriting challenges facing the banks and others now is about you know projected affordability. So it's what what new information can we pull in to say, well, you know what, this person is less risky because of X. So that's going to be the issue. Yep. No, and and we know there's a bunch of folks out there working on this from a uh, AI and machine learning perspective. Uh, but the, the again, those are massive data sets, and it costs a lot of money to process all that. So um, yeah, it could be interesting to see where over the the next three to five years what changes out of things such as financial risk, how people get loans, counterparty risk. Um, the, the whole world is on a different axis now. Any interesting books you're reading this week? No, do you know what? I actually, um, I haven't read anything in a couple of weeks now, primarily because like uh, we've obviously launched a newsletter and I'm doing a lot of writing of that and trying to come up with things to write. I actually really enjoy the writing bit of it, which I never, I never used to write as much stuff. Um, so I'm constantly reading things, but it's more articles or it's reading, you know, like, because, because we want to make it the, the sort of stuff in the news that are topical, but also relevant and a bit interested. I'm kind of reading a lot around topics to try to take a bit of a different perspective on some of them. Yep. So I'm still reading a lot, but it's more like, you know, interesting articles and interesting takes on it and listening to a lot of podcasts at the moment. So by the time I've done that in the evening, I don't want to actually read any other books. Yeah, I know. I was reading some easy books for the last few weeks. I read a bit of fiction lately, just so it's something different, actually, from like fintech, financial services, business. Yeah, I'm going to geek out with my reference to Ahsoka Tano, again, from Star Wars. Um, I I read this Star Wars book about her, which was awesome. 
Um, and I, I remember when, uh, when the last Star Wars movie came out, there was some podcast I was listening to and this like longtime Star Wars fan was getting all excited about some reference to this character in the latest movie. And now I know why. So um, I'm right there. Also, I'm flipping through my trip to the startup world, which is a book by Rudy Falat about the voice of fintech, his podcast. Uh, and he was on episode 74. Um, and Rudy and I go back a few years. So I'm just taking a flip through that to see everyone that he's talked to. Interesting. But I'm only part of the way through it. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes at the end. I'm all, also started... Uh, Where's Pete Townsend's trip to the startup world? Yeah, I know. That's what I'm thinking, right? Because I spend all this time, and I know what you mean about writing, and I'm kind of getting more out of this. I'd say in the last probably 20 episodes or so that we've done, I've gotten a lot more um, thorough, maybe is the word, with the show notes. And I know nobody reads them, right? But for but for me, it's like, it's a record, right? It's a record of what we've done. And there's a lot of good quotes in there. Um, and my dad has actually developed this small program um, that he's able to look at the quotes and then come up with some of the key themes around that, right? So he's working on some of that for me to be able to present it back to everybody. So I just, I've become quite, uh, quite specific on doing that, but you do get a lot out of it, right? And it's a, you know, it's a little, uh, little tombstone for each episode. Yeah. You know, it's that nice sense of creativity too, that you get out of it. Absolutely. All right. All right. Anything else for this week? No, no, that's me. Yeah, that's me done. All right. Well, looking forward to, to seeing what you come up with for uh, for the next draft of the newsletter, which will go out on Monday morning. It'll be in people's s- inboxes Monday morning. The 6th of July. Uh, so keep your eyes out for it, folks. And I, I'm working on two. So because I've kind of developed or like committed to wanting to do it weekly and um, I've, I've kind of committed to like starting to put stuff down and throw stuff into drafts, you know, for my train of thought. And uh, at the moment, I'm, it's a toss-up between something around credit scoring and kind of Moneyball or something around the Kardashians and uh, self-promotion. So, I, I definitely go the Kardashian. It would be one of those two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we'll get a few looks with the, the Kardashian. I did a Moneyball uh, analogy to investment management a few years ago. Uh, and it was, uh, it was fun. And, and I put in loads and loads and loads of pictures of, um, baseball stadiums, uh, and different, uh, different players and all that got deleted out by the editor at the time. Wow. So, uh, anyway. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks Owen. Great talking to you. Talk to you soon. That wraps it up, folks. Thanks for listening to us try to figure out why the world does what it does. The links for the stories we covered are in the show notes for this episode on moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online. Remember, if you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it's highly advisable that you build a relationship with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for recording and editing this podcast. As for me, I increase the odds of startup success. Get in touch at Pete Townsend NV on Twitter if you want to know more. You can follow Owen on Twitter at Owen Fitzgerald9. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya!